So he had huge hands and powerful thighs the day he was born. And that kind of propelled him into his career, you know. He was built, physically built, to do this. You're listening to Deirdre Walnick, the mother of Alex Honnold. Alex stunned the world in 2017 when he climbed El Capitan, a 3,000 feet of horizontal wall in Yosemite National Park. And he did that without a rope, something that was believed to be impossible till then. The movie that documented Alex's preparation and the climb itself, called Free Solo, went on to win the Oscar for the best documentary. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Alex helped to turn rock climbing into a mainstream sport. And in my opinion, he's one of the most impressive and interesting athletes of our generation. In many ways, Alex is redefining the meaning of words like courage, perfectionism, and persistence. I met Deirdre for a conversation after reading her fascinating book, The Sharp End of Life. We discussed nature versus nurture and the role that parents play in helping their kids find and pursue their passion. We tried to answer the question why so many of the parents on this show are teachers. We talked about journaling, grit, and much more. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Guy Michelin, and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators, and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week, we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. So, Deirdre, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, yeah. And thank you for having me here in uh, sunny Sacramento. Yes, very sunny. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to start uh, where I start with all my guests and ask you, how will you define success as a parent? Success as a parent. You mean the success of the children or the success of the parent? Of the parents. Of the parent. If you see your kids grow up to be confident and self-reliant, that's important, happy with who they are, and thoughtful of other people and of the planet that we all live on, I'd say that's a huge success. <laughs> okay, that's a great definition. And I guess today we're going to explore how yeah. you yeah. tried to help the kids become the people that All those they things. Are. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. all those things. And in a way, I think it's the holy grail for parenting. Right. But be right. before we talk about your own parenting, I want to go back in time and learn a little bit about your childhood. Okay. Because I believe that at the end of the day, the way we parent our kids is heavily influenced by the way we were parented. Well, my childhood was kind of different. My mother was handicapped. And so okay. I, was, I was kind of stuck at home and helping her all the time. That was my main job. Both of our parents were from the culture of Eastern Europe, you know, Polish Americans. I'm second generation in this country. And that's a different kind of approach to child raising, you know, back from the old world, the old world way. Children were to be seen and not heard, you know, go play and do it quietly. When I holler, you come running. You know, that was, that was basically the, the rules. I knew when I was very little, like three and a half, four, that if I ever had kids, I was never going to this, that, or the other thing that I saw my parents do, you know. And that was horrible. They just didn't understand how to deal with children. They really had no clue how to, how to talk with kids or 
what kind of examples they were giving to kids. I mean, I could see this when I was four, but they didn't think it through the same way. They were different. <laughs> so you remember things from the age I do. of I like, do. like what kind of yeah. what would be an example for something that you said? Well, I remember very, very sharply always wishing that people, meaning the grown-ups around me, wishing that they would talk to me. I had lots of interesting questions for everybody. Nobody cared. <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear any of them. They just gave orders, and our job was just to carry them out and be quiet, <laughs> be good, you know. And in that kind of child-raising approach, if you want to call it that, a good child is one that causes no problems. If you cause problems, you're bad. Where did you grow up? New York City. New York City. Yeah, after World War II. It was a different place than it is now. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. A different yeah. time for sure. We lived in Queens by that point. Queens was like the country back then. Now it isn't, but you know, then there were still farms out there when I lived there. But I went to high school in Manhattan, so my world sort of kind of opened up. But then I would go home every day, and I'd be back in this little box. But then I did my junior year of college in France, and that really opened up my world and my Weltanschauung, you know, how you see the world. But that didn't stop it. I still lived at home. My brother and I lived at home until I was 25, I guess, and he was 28. But that's the way it was back then. You left home when you either got married, if you're a girl, you know, or if you married somebody and had to take care of her as a guy. You know, that was it. Those were the options back then. I want to fast forward a little. You're in your late 20s. You're getting married. You're having two kids. And I'm curious if at these early days of parenting, you had any principles, conscious principles, as to how are you going to raise the kids? I mean, I never really wanted kids until all of a sudden I just wanted them. You know, I was in my 20s and didn't get married until I was 27. And you're pretty well set in your ways by then. But I was a teacher. I've been a teacher all my life. And parents are all teachers. And so all of these questions you just asked applied to my approach to teaching people, whatever level, whatever language. I've taught five different languages and three different countries, and, you know, I have a lot of experience in that. And so all those questions apply to teaching anybody, and by extension, of course, that includes your own children. And what, what are those well, teaching the big, principles? <laughs> With your own children, you know, for, for small people. Yeah, or even for, for students. For anybody. In class. The, the goal is for them to be confident, to be able in whatever you're teaching them, to be able, capable, and empathetic, to understand other people who are doing the same things. That's very important. I think the only way to really make that happen, and this was markedly obvious in my teaching classes, and then became more so with my own kids. The only way to make this happen is by talking with them, talking with them. Kids are just small people in very tiny packaging. They don't have vocabulary that we have, but they have all the same feelings. And if you can bring that out with less vocabulary, you know, smaller words, whatever it takes, but it's all in there. You're born a tiny adult, you know, and you get bigger and you get more capable and I hope more empathetic and all those things. That's fascinating because when I look at like three of my recent guests, mm -hmm. they're all teachers. So your teacher, Esther, mm -hmm. that was on the previous episode, Wichitsky, is a teacher, yeah. right? The mother of Michael Phelps, Debbie, she's also a teacher. 
And so when I saw that, because <laughs> the whole point of this podcast was actually to identify themes and this right. very early on, because it's only four data points, but right. it, it seems to be sort of a theme already. And so I, I find it fascinating yeah. that you're saying basically that being a parent is a teacher, which makes total sense, mm-hmm. but I never did this connection. All parents are teachers. I mean, what is a teacher? Someone who models something for you, shows you how to do things, explains things for you, brings out your talents. We are all teachers, whether we want to be or not. And kids learn by imitating, copying. That's how they learn language. That's how they learn their life skills. If you want to be a successful parent, you really need to start journaling and figuring yourself out because what you model for them to a large extent will become your, your children. Can you say a little bit more about that? So you are journaling, you still are journaling every day? Or? Yeah, when I can. But yeah, a journal is the best shrink on the planet. Okay. It's the best shrink on the planet. You don't have to pay anything for it. You can do it whenever, you can do it wherever. And it's absolutely enlightening. I mean, you can learn anything you want to know about yourself by writing about it. And this is not encouraged in school. I'll never understand why. I'll never understand why. Because it opens doors to your psyche that nothing else really can do. What is it about teachers that makes them nurture kids that are becoming amazingly successful in their own paradigm? Okay, this is just my opinion. Yeah, you know, of course. I don't think there's an answer. Good, effective teachers, the one that we remember when we're old. Oh, I remember my Mrs. So-and-so from first grade. The f- effective teachers are empathetic, and you can teach your kids to be empathetic. The single most important factor in raising children or animals, it's the same, is the law of cause and effect. And this is not taught anywhere. And most parents don't think about it. Cause and effect. What do you mean? If I do this, they will learn this. If I do this, they will do this. If I go, ah, every time I see a snake, they're going to be afraid of snakes. You have to think through the effect of your actions, every action. That's what makes parenting such an all-consuming job, if you do it right. I mean, an all-consuming job, you have to constantly be aware of the effects of your actions. And good teachers are. Good teachers know that if they yell at the class, then the class is going to be demoralized. But if they explain something clearly with a smile, it'll have a different effect. (laughs) I want to go back to when the kids were born. And when I read your book, which is awesome, by the way, I really liked it. It almost sounds like Alex was destined to be a climber because you have there. He was born a climber. Absolutely. And that, for me, is fascinating because there's all this debate, nurture versus nature. And on one hand, when you look at top athletes like Alex says, people say, no, you're either born like this or not. And then there's another school of thoughts like Laszlo Polgar is a psychologist Mm -hmm. that basically said every kid is a genius. Yeah, And if you nurture them they would become world-class. And he, just to prove that, he coached four of his daughter and they all became basically world champions in chess. Just curious, where do you lie on this spectrum between nurture and nature? And for those people who didn't read the book, can you tell a couple of stories? Your question was kind of two parts. I'm going to address it in two different parts. I agree wholeheartedly that everybody's born with some gift, a passion, a love, a leaning, a a bent, whatever you want to call it, that can make them 
very successful in life or just make them very happy or whatever, however you measure that. And something that they can and would love to excel in if left to their own devices. And for Alex, that was definitely climbing. So all he ever wanted to do was get higher on whatever. Any toy was a means to get higher. Anywhere we'd go, we'd be walking on the sidewalk. I'd turn around, Alex would be walking on the top of the wall. You know, it was all he ever wanted. Now, this, this innate passion can be killed. It can be destroyed by a bad teacher, by bad parents, whatever. Or it can be nurtured. Okay, so, but the amount of work that needs to go into becoming a world-class anything, you know, like your four little girls who became world-class chess players, they had a little of the innate stuff too, and they had the coaching and the encouragement. So they had both, which is extraordinary for them and for everybody. So it can be learned, it can be taught, part of it is innate. The hardest part for parents is to determine which is which. Was my daughter born to be a piano player? If she's not born to be a, a pianist, no amount of piano lessons is going to make her a pianist. So there, there's the nature part and the nurture part. If she is born to love the piano and to crave it and to need it, and you give her the lessons and take her to the schools, then you got a winning situation. And so how do you identify it? I guess that's the yeah. million-dollar question here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do I identify it? I mean, in Alex's case, it sounded like it was easy. You know, oh, yeah, it was simple with Alex. He only wanted one thing since the day he was born. Didn't have to think about it much. With Stasia? With Stasia, it was, uh, she was a little more open. She tried everything, tried lots of sports, tried a lot of music. Alex is kind of monofocused, unifocused. You know, that yeah. he loves climbing, period. End of story. I mean, he likes other things too, of course, but that's what drives him. My daughter likes a lot of stuff, but she also is an extreme athlete. She's an extreme runner and bicyclist, but that didn't happen really until later. You know, she tried all kinds of things and you have to be open to letting them try whatever they want to try. They may not know. You know, most kids don't know right from birth like Alex did. Most kids do not know. You know, if you ask a little boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't know. They don't know the possibilities. And especially if, like, growing up in a place like Sacramento or in a rural place where you don't get to see other jobs acting out around you, you may not ever have heard of what you want to be until you're 20 or so, you know, until you go to college and find out about those jobs that are out there, jobs or endeavors or activities, whatever. That's the hardest job for the parent is to figure out what the kids are all about. I and mean, that's, that's a hard job. And journaling can help there. Journaling can be a big tool in that. Parents have to be excellent observers. And a lot of them, unfortunately, don't bother to take the time to do that. Effective parents have to be good observers, just like a teacher. You have to be a good observer in a classroom. You know, you have to be able to pick out the student who's more physical rather than audio and teach to that. Same thing with kids. And so in the journal, you actually wrote observations. Today, we did this Yeah, this. today he did this. I wonder why. I wonder if that means, you know, figuring out what what was going on and what you can do to either to intervene or to make it more possible for him or less possible for them, you know, whatever the case may be. And what else did you do to help them identify their passion? The biggest thing you can do as a parent is just keep providing opportunities. Let them take the saxophone lessons if that's what they want to do. You know, get them a saxophone, a cheap one, whatever, you know. So one of the stories that you have in the book is when Alex was four or five, you went to France 
And it was one of those occasions that you didn't look for a minute and then yes. I was hanging on a cliff. Yes. Oh, yes. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And, oh, um, that's one of those moments. I talk about those moments in the book. Yeah, moments that mothers will never forget. That was one of them. I have a lot of friends in France. We went to visit them and they had kids and my kids and them, you know, their kids played and... And we went to this island off the west end of, northwest end of France, L'Ile d'Oissant. And it's so beautiful. And he heard us all talking about how beautiful it is and the flowers and the, the birds' life. And the, oh, the, oh, it's just beautiful. And so we were all going out there to sightsee. So Alex just climbing to him is like walking to us. You know, it's no big deal. It's just go up there, you know, just go up there. <laughs> What's your problem? Just go up there. So there was this huge promontory of big jumbles of rocks at the end of this island. And we, we were going to have a picnic near there. Never entered my mind that, I mean, he was so tiny. He was seven or eight and he was like probably weighed 45 pounds. He was so scrawny, a little, a little thing. So I turned around, where's Alex? Where's Alex? Where's Alex? And Alex was out on this promontory, just exploring. He was doing what we told him to do. Basically, you know, we said, we're going to go out of the, oh, you're going to love it. It's going to be beautiful. You can look around and see. So he was out there to sightsee and he couldn't hear us because of all the crashing of the waves and the screaming of the gulls. And it was a very violent coastal environment, very violent, a lot of waves and noise and wind. Oh, the wind was terrible. So we had two older children with us. I think Flavien was maybe 14 at that point. So we said, Flavien, go get him. Well, Flavien was not a climber, <laughs> but he could see in our faces that this was serious. So he went out there and he got close to him, but he couldn't reach him. And Alex turned around and said something. We couldn't hear anything. And then Alex kept going around the corner. So I figured, oh, God, that's the end. That's the end. I'm going to have to go home with just a daughter. And it wasn't the end at all. Alex knew what he was doing. He had a great time out there communing with the the sea and the seagulls and then he came back around the corner and came back to our picnic and by the time he got down off that promontory i had you know my heart had slowed a little and and i had kind of thought it through a little and i mean i realized what was going on he was just doing what we all went out there to do and the only way he knew how and he didn't know that what he did as normal none of us could do you know And that's been his, that's been the case with him his whole life. Till this day, he talks about this stuff, you know, it was no big deal. I, I just did this. I just did that. Anybody can do this if they train hard enough. He doesn't realize that that's not true. And what did you tell him? Because I, I, I was well, trying I, to put myself in your shoe. I, yeah. I it, it was really hard. It was really hard to dial it back because I was... What's the word? Not hysterical. I was not hysterical. I had my you daughter. You can say to, hysterical. I, I would be hysterical. I, I, close, close. But I had my daughter to take care of too. And, you know, and and I wanted to go out there and get him, but I didn't want her to go home alone <laughs> back to California. But by the time he got down in Flavia and everybody's milling about, and and by that time there was a crowd there. You know, all the other tourists, so they were all worriedly staring at this rock, and hoping for the best. But by the time he got down, I had dialed it back to the point where I realized that. Well, this is what I just told him to do. For the last three days, we've been telling him to do this. Go there and explore. It's beautiful. And it was beautiful in an objective way. It was gorgeous. So I didn't yell at him. I just didn't say anything. <laughs> okay, let's go eat. Let's have our picnic. I didn't yell at him. I asked him, was that hard? You know, no, it was easy. I just climbed up there and came back. You know, it was nothing. It was no big deal to him. That was my introduction to Alex, no big deal, Honold. Because I guess these moments are probably... 
can break or make a kid because I can see a oh, kid. Oh, heck yeah. My mother would have slapped him silly for disappearing, for not, you know, telling her where he was going, for all these things that he would not have understood. And I knew that from experience. <laughs> you know, I was more like Alex than I was like my mother. You know? So I knew how it would have gone with, with my parents and a lot of other parents. But I also knew what I had instilled in him. And I could see it was so easy for him. <laughs> so you have to change who you are for each kid. You have to deal with each child in that child's way. And that's a hard job as a parent. Yeah, I might be jumping ahead here because this story just repeats itself. Yeah, Maybe yeah. even more and more as Alex grows up. Yes, yes. Were there times that you told him, Alex, you have to stop. You might tell oh, yeah. yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or you were always, no, this is his passion. That's what he, he needs to do. We moved here when Alex was five. Stacia was seven. And his constant request was, can I go up on the roof? Can I go up on the roof? I mean, it's not very high. That's, that's where it is, you know. So can I go up on the roof? And I always said no. I always said no. And who's going to let a five-year-old kid climb up on the roof? No ladder. He just wanted to climb up. You know, he, he wouldn't have needed a ladder or anything. And I knew that. <laughs> so I kept saying no, 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 no. And then one day, I guess by this time, he was maybe six or seven. Still very, very tiny, very small. And I'm in the kitchen here, and I hear crunch, crunch, crunch across the roof. So I knew exactly what had happened. So I went out there, and I'm sitting out there by the pool looking up, and Alex is up there having the best time of his life. He's just so ecstatic. He's finally made it up on the roof, and it's the highest point in Carmichael. You know, he, he was having a great time up there, and he's finding toys that had wound up on the roof and, and stuff. And I went out there, and I, I shouted, Alex, what are you doing up there? Didn't I tell you, you know, you know, like a real parent? His joy was so, I couldn't damp it down. I was angry, but he was so happy up there. And he was so comfortable up there. It was so easy to him. And I could see he was in no danger. So I made a deal with myself. I said, okay, Alex, you want to go up on the roof? Anytime you go up there, you have to clean out the gutters. <laughs> So immediately he bent down and he started cleaning out all the gutters and he found all kinds of junk. And so after that, every time he went up on the roof, I'd hear crunch, 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 and then he'd clean out the gutters. So that was a win-win situation. <laughs> you have to, you know, use what you have and every kid is different. If Stacia had been up there, I probably would have reacted differently. But he was just so at ease and so comfortable and it would have been stupid to get hysterical about it, you know, to, to insist on my power as a parent. That's not what this is about. So I, I shared with you before we met uh, a scorecard. I, I created yeah. to my, for myself a scorecard with all the traits that I see it as my responsibility to help my kids mm -hmm. develop those traits. And for the listeners, I'll put it in the show notes, but just for those who uh, are not going to see the show notes, I'll just quickly read it or just to give a sense. I see it as my role to help the kids develop curiosity, optimism, empathy, being courageous, happy, self-confident, have a growth mindset, etc. And again, the reason I started the podcast, I figured I'll go to people, or I'll think about kids around the world or people around the world that has some of those traits. I don't think there are people that have all the traits, but some of yeah. those traits, yeah. and then go and talk to their parents to see if their parents did something intentional to get those kids to have those extreme levels of optimism or, or curiosity. And so mm -hmm. I'm very 
curious because Alex, for me, if I think about this list, he's probably the, the extreme case of being courageous and also of grit and probably a couple of other ones that are less obvious. So I want to start right, from being right. courageous and from grit and ask you, first of all, if my observation is correct, I think it is, but maybe I'm just assuming, does he have those extreme levels of grit and courage? What do you mean by grit? Tenacity, don't give up. If yeah, you okay. fail, you, okay. you stand up again and you try again. Yeah, yeah, and I've just, yeah. again, I've seen the movies about him. He's, he's relentless. Like yeah, he right, goes, right. he falls. He, he, he can was do born like that. He was born like that. He never had any limits. If he wanted to do something, he would just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until he did it. He was always like that. He had no limits. He could push all the adults way beyond their limits. I was the only one who could keep up with him in that, you know, who could. And do you think that's anything that you did or that contributed to that or anything that I as a parent can take from the way you brought him up so that my kids have probably not the same level of courage and grit, but even close to that level? Well, that yeah, it? there's all kinds of things I consciously did. I mean, curiosity feeds grit and being courageous. You know, if you teach them to wonder, you know, wonder is an amazing tool. If you teach them to wonder about why do you think that's like that? How did that happen? What do you think that is? That feeds their willingness to explore and to try stuff. And that's where courage comes from. Courage and grit. Courage is not a skill. Courage is a result of the skills. What do you mean by that? Define courage. Courage, the way I think about it is I want my kids to not be afraid to go after their dreams the way I was for a big part of my life. So if they once they identify their purpose, and I think that part of our job as parents is to help them, okay. just like you said, to identify right. their calling in life. Right. But once they did, I want them to be able to go after it full force without any inhibition, yeah. without any fears. Well, that that see, that's the result of raising a kid who is confident in who he or she is and their value. If they're not valued by their parents, and kids know this, <laughs> if they're not valued by their parents, they're not going to be confident and they won't have the courage because that's the result of the confidence. The curiosity feeds that as well. You know, if you teach them to explore and to wonder Courage is the result of all those things. So is there anything that you did consciously or if you look retrospectively that you think contribute to that? One oh, thing yeah. that I think oh, yeah. I'm hearing you say is that you asked a lot of questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. We walked all the time together and we talked and we made, we sang together all the time, made music. And any little bug on the sidewalk, you know, what do you think that is? Where do you think he lives? And have them start conjecturing, guessing stuff and, and wondering, creating that atmosphere of... Let's wonder and find out where this goes, you know. That feeds it all. And optimism is an, an outgrowth of that. Optimism comes from knowing that you can do this. Empathy is kind of at the base of it all. You have to care. Basically, you know, what learning comes down to is you have to care about others, about that little caterpillar on the sidewalk, about litter in the street. You have to care. And that article I sent you about, you know, raising conservationists, that's all about that. And we constantly fed that. And you have to. Kids mimic what they live. And if you toss your cigarette butts in the street and don't care, then they will too. And if you see those cigarette butts in the street saying, oh, too bad that somebody did that. Let's pick that up so the, the street is nicer for everybody else. And, you know, then they'll care. 
So caring is at the root of all of it. You called it empathy, caring, whatever. That's at the root of all of it. And curiosity is maybe the next step in that. And a lot of these other things that are on your list are the results of those things. That's interesting. I never thought about it this way. I'm just thinking, so I can see myself caring about others. Still, there is a long way between caring about other people and climbing Al Capitan without a rope. So, so, yes, so, so, <laughs> yes. So I, that's trying, a big leap. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, so I'm trying to understand that's what else leap. is there that helped him do this jump because it's extremely well, okay. Encouragement, along with caring, encouragement is extremely important. If he wants to try baseball and you say, oh, baseball's stupid, let's go do this or go fishing or whatever, he's not going to be really good at baseball. Encouragement can make or break any kid, any endeavor, any love. It can be killed or it can be nurtured. So if I want to, I'm trying to summarize my takeaways. If I want as a parent to encourage my kids to be courageous, I'm hearing you say encouragement. encouragement. is very important. Basically, this curiosity and asking them questions. Another thing that I have here on my list in terms of the scorecard is I want the kids to be voracious readers. And that's easy to do. So, Because I I saw that in the book you're saying I read to them every evening. All the time. All the time. Not only in the evenings. You know, the written word is everywhere in our culture. On signs, on packages, in stores, and binders and shoes and everything has words and letters on them. And our kids started learning letters when they were babies, literally, you know. I'll never forget my my daughter learned the the letter O. She was so proud of herself. She was like, I don't know, 18 months old. She learned it on on a piano, a friend's piano. She sat down at the piano and she loved music. She's banging away and and there was an O in the name of the piano and she looked at it because we had already been talking about letters on signposts and things while we go walking and she saw that and she pointed to it oh and then she found o's everywhere her jump rope was an o her bicycle was an o you know everywhere and that's how skill builds you know and that's so easy to foster all it requires is the parents constant unrelenting attention don't let an opportunity go by without without making it a teachable moment as we say you know you're walking down the street and on the car that says Ford, there's an O. Do you know this letter too? And what's this letter, you know? There are teaching moments all around us, and you have to just get in the mode of not passing any of them up. And how do you get from this to getting the kids to love reading? By the way, well, like the, I'm just curious, if I'm jumping to the, the result test, the kids these days, like if you look at your kids today, they're voracious readers, it's worked? They are voracious readers, both of them. It comes down to how they feel. Grammy and Grampy read to them all the time. They'd sit on their lap, you know, they'd cuddle, they'd smell Grammy and Grampy, and they, you know, they felt good, and they turned the pages for them. And it's a very emotional thing, learning to read, you know, learning to love books. Take them, you know, to little things at the libraries where they read to them, have, have your aunt and uncle read to them, and just moments that they will cherish or remember. Read to them at night, not when you're exhausted and you just want to be over with it, but enjoy the book with them. And that's what they'll remember. And then they'll associate those good feelings with books. I never thought about it this way. That's oh, yeah. That's how, it, that's how it happens. They have to associate those good feelings with books. So it, it seems like your kids have a very strong relationship 
with each other. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, from early age, it sounds like. Absolutely, from his birth. Yeah, I, I did that. I consciously tried to do that. You know? So how did you do that? Because one of my regrets is that when I grew up, my brother and I were, were not close. Yeah. And that's, I'm, that's this too is bad. one yeah. of the things we talked about trying to course correct when you're a parent. I, right. I'm right. so conscious and I'm trying well, to keep it. A lot of that comes from how parents deal with the arrival of the new child. If the first child, let's say there are only two, if the first child is pushed aside to make room for the second, they're going to resent that. They're going to hate that kid. You know, they're not going to want it around. They're going to slap it when nobody's looking or trip him when he's walking through, you know, learning to walk. I've seen that happen over and over with families. Stacia was, of course, it helps that she was an empathetic type. She was born that way. She was born a diplomat from toddlerhood on. You know, any little crying baby, she would walk over and pat their arms. Oh, it's okay. You know, even when we lived in Japan, she was like that. So she was like one, you know. So she was that way. She was the understanding, empathetic type. But I think it would have worked with any kid. We're all born empathetic, but it gets crushed somewhere along the way sometimes. But so from the moment I found out I was pregnant with Alex, I talked with her. And again, it all comes down to talking with them. Children are adults in small packaging. You just have to talk like you would to an adult. So I would talk with her about, you're going to have a new brother or sister. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And what can you do to help when he's around, when she's around? And when we got stuff for the new babies, you know, like, like a pack of diapers, whatever, I can't think of right now, but I'd get a little pack of diapers from somebody and I'd say, oh, Oh, when we have a new baby, you can you can open this and bring them to me so I can help the baby. You know, I, I involved her in caring for this new person. And boy, did she care for that new person once he arrived. She was his little mama. She would pat his head when he cried. And she'd go get the diaper. And she would, oh, she was so caring about her little brother. And that never changed. And did you do things when they grew up to keep this magic or this was just uh, well, it was already it done it was already done it, so it, it just, years it just they just grew that way so if i fast forward now alex goes to college he actually is all a, one year of it <laughs> yeah so he, he's he's getting admitted to berkeley engineering yes, which is a yeah. very prestigious school yes it is yeah. and then at the end of the first year he comes and he tells you mom <laughs> i'm thinking to take some time off or to drop out of college yeah can you describe this conversation what do you say i can in great detail. <laughs> well, what could you say to that? They had just lost their father, you know, the summer before that. That winter, they almost lost Alex. You know, his horrible accident that he had up on Mount Tulak. Did you read that part in the book yet? Anyway. So it had been a really, and the year before they had lost their maternal grandfather, my father. And then the year before that, they lost their paternal grandfather. So it's, it, it was like four or five years of horrible things, life-changing, altering things, you know. And then he, he wanted to drop out. and He didn't want to just spring it on me, just say, this is what I'm going to do. He was very nice about it. You know, he, he asked me. He didn't tell me. He asked me. This was right after I'd found out that he hadn't really been going to class. <laughs> you know, his first year of Berkeley, he very seldom saw the inside of a classroom. But he's so bright that he just aced all his classes. He'd go to one class, find out what he needed to do, what he needed to know. And when the paper was due and he'd do it, you know, the 11th hour, or he'd write the paper and he got all A's. But he really went to class. He went out to the, there's a crag in Berkeley, uh, you know, climbing crag, and he would spend his time there. 
So I, I, I had just found that out, and it kind of appalled me, but not really, because I knew what he was. And so I knew there was no choice in the matter. He was going to climb, period, end of story. Whether he did it with my blessing or not would change things. And I wanted to stay part of his life, and I wanted him to always come and ask me, you know, you know, always, whatever it was. Feel free to come and ask me or tell me anything. So I, I didn't have a choice in the matter. I knew I had to say yes, yeah, of course. And I gave him my van because it would be safer. You know, I, we had a family van still from four of us and a big dog. And now it was just two of us because Stacia lived in Oregon, and I had my father's little car. So I just kept my little car. I gave Alex the, the family van and went off to make history. So you said yes. I said, sure, of course, give it a shot, you know, try it. I, he, he said, you know, just for a year, and then I can go back. I knew he wasn't going to go back. College is not for everybody. That's remarkable. I think it's a good transition to talk about Free Solo, the documentary. Okay. I watched it with my kids last week. I'm kind of like, I was speechless. I didn't know what <laughs> right. to, You look at that and it's it almost looks not human. Right, right. And a couple of questions that I wrote down as I was watching the movie. First of all, he's mentioning there's something about a sentence that you used to tell him in French when he grew up. <laughs> Something about perfection. What does it mean? Almost doesn't count. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because well, he seems to be a perfectionist. Uh, he yes, is a perfectionist because yes, yes, in his yes. profession. Yes, you have to not, be. You otherwise to you're be. dead, right. I guess. You have to be. He was always a perfectionist in certain things. Other things, he was as lazy as sin. But he was always a perfectionist in certain things. Did you influence it, or is, is that, again, nurture versus nature? It was this? No, he what? was like that. His motor skills, he has a remarkable understanding of his spatial relationship to the earth. You know, his body, he knows, he knows where all his toes are and what he can put his little finger on. And, you know, he, spatial relationships are amazing in his brain. But no fine motor skills, none whatsoever. Playing the piano, writing with a pencil. Oh, it was torture to him. And so that would drive him up the wall. It sounds like it was almost like the, from the beginning, from day one. It oh, yeah, doesn't sound yeah. like there's any was, way that we No, as perfectionism parents... is a character trait. I don't think you can teach that. Okay. You can teach people to be more careful, you know, but perfectionism to that extreme is, is a, just a character trait that you're born with. I want to talk a little bit about you because you okay. started running marathons at the age of 55 and you, yeah, yeah. and at the age of 66, you started climbing. And no, I started climbing at 58. Oh, at 58? You know, in the gym and outdoor, outdoors a little. Okay. But I did El Cap at 66. And you did El Cap at 66, which for people that don't know, this is... I climbed like the, the vertical granite wall of 3,200 feet with my son. Right, which is straight so up. Yosemite is kind of like the mecca of climbing. Yeah, yes. this, El Cap is kind of like the, the black stone of mecca. Is, yes, exactly. And It doesn't get any finer than that right? or, or any more demanding than that. I don't know. I find it fascinating. So I'm just curious, <laughs> what was the thought process of getting into running and even more so into climbing at relatively later age? Running was something that I watched take root in my daughter over the years. 
she loved it and she loved to watch it. And she had some teachers who ran marathons and she just talked about it, talked about it all the time and went out to cheer her teachers on. And so I knew, I knew about it, but I didn't know. I mean, I was too busy. I had so many jobs and, and my miserable marriage was failing and my parents were dying and it was horrible. This is all in the background. You know, I heard, all, heard and saw all this going on and, and I didn't know what runners actually did. I mean, you could run anywhere. Why do you have to close down the city streets? Just people can run 26 miles. Can't they just go to the river and run 26 miles? That's, you know, so, and so Stacia cured me of some of these, some of these mis- misconceptions. Conceptions, yeah. thank you. But, and I saw it brought her such joy. And I was, this was all happening in my, what I call my black hole period. I went through these like five, six, seven years of absolute not misery, but absolute overworked. I never had a moment to myself to grieve my father or my father-in-law. or And then I had these four houses to deal with all alone. And I was dealing with my husband's estate. You know, I was executor of his estate because there was nobody else to do it. And I had all these jobs. So I would go to my teaching job. I'd teach all day long, come home exhausted, change my clothes and go down into the office in my house, do all the estate work, do the this, feed the dog, do the, take care of the pool, take care of the yards, take the dog for a walk at night. And so the dog and I started, it was a very big dog, an Alaskan sled dog, you know, Malamute. And so I started jogging with the dog just to keep up with the dog. I wasn't planning on jogging, but she was going fast. So, And so I just started that way. And I'd come home once in a while, and, and Alex was still living at home when he was in the country. You know, he was living at home. So I, I came home once. I said, "Yo, Alex, I just ran a mile with the dog." To me, this was unheard of because you know I grew up in a cloud of smoke. My both my parents smoked, and so my lungs are shot. I mean, I knew I I knew I couldn't run or do anything vigorously physical. You know, but I ran a mile, and I told Alex, and you know Alex now. His immediate reaction was. Oh, cool, Mom. If you can do one, you can do two. <laughs> so I did. And then months later, I came back. Yeah, well, Alex, I ran two whole miles with the dog. I, I was beside myself. Oh, cool, Mom. If you can do two, you can do three. Yeah. And on and on it went. And so I uh, found out about that run to feed the hungry, you know, here in Sacramento. And, and I signed up for that. And it was as liberating and as satisfying as my daughter had made it sound. And so I just bought into it. Because he would come home and tell me, oh, we went to Owens River Gorge and I climbed this and we did this. I didn't even know if it was good or bad, you know, what he was telling me. So so I wanted to. So I had him take me to the climbing gym one day when he, he couldn't climb. He had a, an injured arm. And so he could belay me, but he couldn't climb. And so we went and he showed me the ropes. I rediscovered that I loved it. And from that to... Climbing El Cup, there's a big uh, gap ten, again. Ten years, ten, ten years. years. Yeah, it took ten years to get to that point. Yeah, it was little baby steps. So again, you know, step by step. I started in the gym, and I made friends, and we climbed together. And then, little by little, they started. You know, it was springtime, and they started talking about going outdoors. And oh yeah, I want to try that. Yeah, so I went out with them once. You know, the first time, <laughs> first time was horrible. I couldn't do anything. I was absolutely useless. <laughs> But I went again and again and again and, and got a little less useless, a little more useful, and learned all kinds of stuff that I never imagined learning in my life. And then I started going to big places like Yosemite. And, you know, we had taken the kids to Yosemite when they were very little. And, but 
been going there many years and seen these little dots going up the walls. And I always wondered, gee, I wonder what they see up there. I wonder what it's like to be up there. But I couldn't imagine it. It was nothing like I imagined. <laughs> Absolutely nothing like I imagined. But uh, yeah, it took me a long time. And it, uh, you spoke about persistence and grit and courage. It required a lot of this. Yeah. Is that something that, I guess you, you always had it, right? You, you just. I guess, I guess. I mean, I didn't just learn it then, I'm sure. Yeah, I must have been always like that. I had to be like that to live peacefully in my family at home. And the last question is, um, what advice would you give parents that are kind of like at the beginning of their journey? So I'm, I'm a little bit in, but I, I Yeah, well, can't... all the things we talked about, obviously, right. you know. But think it through. Cause and effect is the single most driving piece of advice. Cause and effect. So many people don't even think about that. But that's what makes kids learn. And that's what decides what they're going to learn. And it's so important. Cause and effect. What you do has an effect. Think it through. That requires mastery of self. Don't fly off the handle and get hysterical, like I was tempted to do when he went off on those rocks <laughs> in the Atlantic. Oh, my goodness. But it would have shut him down. It would have been to no avail whatsoever. And I would have been angry and miserable, and he would have been angry and miserable, and we wouldn't have known why. That's what happens when you let it go like that when you, when you fly off nobody really knows what happened or why you have to think it through be in control of yourself parents have to exert a lot of self-control and a lot of them don't so thank you very much for your time and for the insights it was fascinating i can't wait to see what this is going to become <laughs> okay great thank you We covered a lot in this episode, and after reflecting on it, I wrote down these four takeaways. One, parents are teachers. Once I realized that many of our guests are also teachers, this statement seemed obvious. But before starting the show, I have to admit that it wasn't obvious to me at all. Great parents are great teachers, and probably the opposite is also true in many cases. Over the next episodes, I want to dig deeper into this and better understand what makes a great educator and what more can we as parents learn from the great educators of our generation. My second takeaway is around nature versus nurture. Whether clear from birth as in Alex's case or passion discovered later in life as in most cases, it's very important that as parents we don't discourage our kids from following their innate passion consciously or unconsciously. In addition, nature isn't enough. You have to dedicate many, many years of relentless pursuit to become world-class. My third takeaway is about becoming a voracious reader. Developing a love for reading is related to how kids feel when they read at an early age. If reading is associated with a warm memory and with a good feeling, they'll be more likely to love reading. And lastly, Deirdre came full circle, from being a teacher to her kids to becoming their student. She proved to have, much like Alex, great persistence and courage. My guess is that even if Alex was born to be a climber, he probably developed a lot of the traits that enabled him to rise so high by modeling his mom. 
It also reminded me that at any stage, we shouldn't be afraid to pick up new hobbies and new interests as a way to stay connected to our kids, even if it means climbing a 3,000 feet vertical wall called El Capitan. Thank you all for listening. For show notes, please visit RaisingToRise.com. Your support is greatly appreciated and I'm looking forward to continuing the parenting journey together.